welcome to the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. Glad to have you back here at the podcast. The NATO Sessions is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. If you want to see me do stand-up comedy, you can see me every Friday night at The Business at the Hemlock Tavern. Today, my guest is author and activist Rebecca Solnit. Her new book is called Men Explain Things to Me. She's been writing some incredible stuff about gender and gender violence, about gentrification, about the climate crisis. She has an incredible, fascinating Facebook feed of, of news articles and analysis and discussion and debate. So I was really excited to get to talk to her. We sat in the bleachers at the baseball diamond watching a Little League game in a field in Golden Gate Park the other afternoon. So it's a fun talk. And now the NATO sessions with Rebecca Solnit. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, partly because my mom has been wanting me to talk to you. Um, Thanks, Mom. Yeah. Um, uh, What's her name? Susan Green. I think she got to know your brother at Occupy SF. Oh, um, okay. And and then started reading your books and uh, was like, you got to talk to her. You got you know. So, um, but also, uh, I've been wanting to talk to you about all of the gender and yes, all women stuff that's been out there. And my first question is, do you feel like sexism is getting worse? You know, I think that the people who are most targeted with it are a really young woman, and I'm not in that sector. But I do think that there's a really broad and deep response that's incredibly exciting, and it's happening in India and South Africa as well as North America. And so I don't know that it's getting worse. I think we're naming a bunch of things and calling out a bunch of things that have been tolerated, accepted, uh, unnamed, uncovered, etc. all these um, decades, centuries, millennia. And I, I feel the podcast is driven by my questions and my confusions. And like my activist background, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a labor guy. Yeah. And I was, I was politically mentored by Marxists. And so... I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> you know, I like, which is to say that... that uh, I was trained to think about social change from the perspective of, like, we are going to build mass movements, we're going to make demands on corporate power, on the state, for policy and things like that. And then I did that, uh, I wrote and produced that segment for Totally Biased about catcalling. Um, and it, one of the things that was really fascinating about it was we had the, the, these various activists, and it was suggested by Jennifer Posner, I said, what do you want us to do about gender? And she said, do something about catcalling. So we went and did it, and uh, and we consulted with these activists about catcalling, and said and their sort of argument about what the underlying causes of the problem were and the solution had to do with not demands on the state or not demands on corporate power, but like personal you know personal accountability and confrontation. Men need to talk to men, that kind of stuff. And I I uh, so I'm sort of curious about understanding that better. You know, in a funny way, you can think of patriarchy as the fundamental state and the ultimate corporation. If you look at who runs states and corporations, it sort of looks like the patriarchy anyway. And um, But it's, it's interesting because also on the history of activism has tended to suggest the problem is over there and it's, it's sort of this mechanical fix rather than the problem is pervasive, you know, when you're talking about kind of Marxist labor politics, is that if the, if we had better working hours and wages, then rather than like if the subtle pervasive um, 
hatred of women um, was extirpated um, within all of us, then there would be subtle but profound differences that would make life less hideous for um, half the population and the other half of the population less pathological. Right. It's uh, one of my one of my best friends spent years working uh, in various rape prevention, domestic violence programs with men, and he said that sort of the he he described it as that the whole approach was refining our response to the inevitable and never asking how does the world need to change so that this doesn't keep happening. Yeah. What what does he mean refining our response to the inevitable? Like like figuring out how to provide better services. Yeah. When horrible things happen or better treatment or better consequences rather than what is causing this and you know I think you have to look at it though and it's not inevitable. I need you know people there's this ridiculous thing you run across all the time that suggests that there's some inherent biological uh, foundation for being a creep or a rapist or something like that. And, you know, there isn't, actually. And, it's, and when you want to talk about foundational, primordial human existence, I just read one of my favorite categories of things, which is about hunter-gatherers and traditional peoples. It's about the bush people of the Kalahari. And they live in these very small groups, and there's no way you could... You know, the idea that, oh, men just naturally rape. It's like you're in a small group of people you're going to be with your whole life. And if you do something seriously offensive and wrong, um, you know, you're just going to be, you, you know, they're going to have to throw you out to live on your own and you're not going to live on your own. And it doesn't, it, you know, so far as I can tell, it doesn't happen. You know, under those circumstances, there's no, you know, it isn't inevitable. It isn't inevitable that some guy makes uh, kissy, kissy noises when a 17-year-old walks down the street. None of that stuff is inevitable. It's it's socially produced, and, you know, we can change those social conditions. And, you know, until the 1970s, domestic violence was not something the law took an interest in until feminists made them take an interest in it. Incidences of domestic violence are down partly because men are held accountable for it and partly, you know, because we have a public conversation about it that talks about how horrible and despicable and illegal it is. And so, you know, I think that all these things are found profoundly changeable. And you go to other countries where things are actually different. And, uh, you know, so there's this, so there's, I don't think there's anything inevitable about the way people behave day to day. And and when you talk about changing the conditions, uh, what say say more about what you mean? Well, I think changing one of the things that's when you talk about rape culture, which has been a really useful word that's been uh, put in circulation in the last few years. You look at like the Steubenville rapes or the gang rape on around the same time on the New Delhi bus, and these guys are doing things in a way to impress each other. What is it that? Um, doing horrible things to a helpless human being. What is it that makes you think that's cool? What if we have a culture in which people think that's actually kind of repugnant and pathetic and deeply distasteful and you'd need to be contaminated if you did something like that rather than that it's kind of awesome and you want to show your, your dude friend's uh, cell phone videos of it? You know, like how do you... And I think a lot of people in the culture do think it's distasteful. There's this kind of lad culture that thinks something else and there's lots of things feeding it what if it stops getting fed and what you know what if we change um how these things are contextualized and the pop culture etc around it that so, feed it and that includes everything from music to porn uh etc that kind of you know everyday food of the psyche so uh the i had mentioned that there's this conversation that happens in the comedy world yeah because the, uh you know it, it comes up 
cyclically. Um, somebody makes an exceptionally obnoxious rape joke, and then there's the conversation. Well, yeah, so I mean, some well, somebody makes an exceptionally obnoxious joke, and somebody blogs about it, and then there's a conversation. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's it, like a slightly askew from that. It's happening right now because a week ago, from where we sit right now, uh, Dave Chappelle did a performance, like an unannounced performance at a sort of underground comedy show in L.A. Where he did an act that that uh, that was in part transphobic, and somebody wrote about it and wrote about their conflicted feelings about, uh, you know, he's I feel like he's a you know what they were saying is I feel like he's a genius, but he's also transphobic, and this the, you know I I got involved in this a few years ago because Daniel Tosh was the most famous person who made some rape jokes and somebody blogged about it, and then it blew up the internet. And, and there are, you know, there are comics who are like, feel like they're making fun of political correctness, whatever that thing is supposed to be. And then there are, com but the, there are comics who are like, well, of course we all oppose rape. So why can't we make jokes about horrible things as though. Lynching jokes are so funny too. Right. Ha, 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 yeah. ha, ha. Uh, why can't we make lynching jokes? Don't they have a sense of humor? Ha 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 ha. Well, it's yeah. like, I mean. The, the, to me, the, one of the interesting things about it was that there was sort of an assumption that, like, well, we all agree that rape is bad, so it's okay for us to joke about it and know that we're just kidding, when, as I pointed out, like, you know, I'm not a particularly successful comedian, but I would say conservatively, I still perform live for 10,000 people a year, and yeah. based on what we know about rape statistics, I feel like it's a certainty that I performed with rapists in the audience, and... And rape victims. And, and victims. Yeah. And what it means to have those people in the room, you know, yeah. like about how you take responsibility for your material. Absolutely. No, and you know, yeah, that's the kind of, yeah, exactly. And that's something that doesn't get talked about that much is that the atmosphere that encourages rapists and discourages victims where it's kind of like, oh, yeah, keep being silent. Oh, yeah, what happened to you? You deserve what happened to you or nobody will believe you or... You know, that kind of stuff. But what I find really exciting is that Louis C.K. and Aziz Ansari are doing some, you know, who are two of the most visible comics in the country are doing really great feminist comedy. Because I think part of the argument was like, oh, we have the right to be funny and we just need to be all transgressive and it's really dangerous and edgy to be transgressive. Or it's all dangerous and edgy to do this stuff. And it's not. It's actually reinforcing the status quo in a really sad way. Um, when you make rape jokes, like, you know, those kinds of rape jokes and misogynist jokes and stuff. I saw Aziz Ansari's show live, uh, uh, God, like a month ago in San Francisco, his warm-up for his big show he's doing at Madison Square Garden. I think it's at Madison Square Garden. And he was really funny talking about sexual harassment and some of the other stuff that happens to women, what it's like living your life, potentially being stalked and followed and... Uh, you know, just having all this creepy stuff happen to you and having to just uh, deal with it all the time. Um, one of the things that in that whole conversation that I find really um, confusing for myself is that the, like, clearly everybody understands that the entertainment that we consume affects our ideas and values and how we see the yeah. world. And, you know what's what's on what's in the movies and on the news and on television 24 hours a day and me performing for 150 people in a comedy club is that a difference purely of scale it's you know we're 
comedians as live performers, we're still part of that same process of creating culture that people consume, and that people and that must that have to uh, affect people's values and how they understand the world. But how do we? It's also clearly not true that like this particular joke caused this person to go do a specific. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. how do I understand my own responsibility and my own contribution as a creative person? Yeah, well, you know, I think there are specific circumstances where you can look at, like, you know, like I mentioned the Steubenville rape, we could stick with that. What things around those boys made them think that um, violating an unconscious 15-year-old was a totally awesome thing to do, and you know, and it's uh, cumulative. It might be porn, it might be um, music lyrics, it might be mainstream culture, which doesn't do a whole lot better. I was just reading... Roxanne Gay on a New York Times piece from a few years ago where an 11-year-old was gang raped by 28 guys and some male reporter did a piece that was sort of about like what a hard time the guys in the town were going to have this has kind of ruined everything for them and he just couldn't quite get around to being cognizant of the existence of the 11-year-old as the person who maybe had suffered more than the 28 guys who assaulted her and things like that. So you see this culture. And, you know, I had it happen on Facebook today. Some guy quoted my feminist essay in Harper's and some guy completely out of the blue suddenly brought up false rape accusations, which is this thing. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, every single time rape comes up, um, some guy from out of the blue pops up and says false rape accusations. That's part of a culture that's constantly reiterating from the plot of the stupid new movie Gone Girl to these little conversations everywhere that women are malicious, manipulative, unreliable liars and uh, aren't to be trusted, which is one of the ways women have been silenced. Shame is another. And it's interesting seeing things like uh, Emma Solkowitz at Columbia carrying that mattress around as performance art where she's no longer ashamed that she was raped, which is part of what slows people down from reporting it. And I think that there's we're gonna we might enter a new era where young women are so unafraid that they're going to confront their rapists in so direct a way and so public a way that not that little subtribe of dudes who might think it's cool to see an assault on a cell phone video, but the whole general public's going to look at you and say, "You did that, really? You did that? We you know we don't want to hire you, we don't want to date you, we don't want you in our house, we don't want you in our." Right, You know, and it's going to be, and it's, that's one of the things we're seeing with the consent law ruckus and the campus rape ruckus and stuff is all these guys who are incredibly upset about like, what if there are consequences for what I do sexually? Oh my God. And it's like, what if I'm accountable? No, how can you do this to me? I'm a victim. Right. I'm a victim of accountability. Well, and it's this weird, like, like, uh, logical mess of, you know, false rape accusations on the one hand, and on the other hand, this is inherent to men, and this is just what men are going to do. Do you know what I mean? It's like... It's like I raped her, but she's lying when she says I raped her, because right. men just rape and women just lie. Uh, yeah, yeah, the bed was on fire when I got into it. Well, actually, in the piece I did for Harper's, I talked about the joke, joke Freud um, tells, uh, what is it, the, the broken kettle. I never borrowed your kettle, and it was broken when you lent it to me, and I returned it already. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of where a lot of guys are with the discussion about this thing, is that, like, nobody has ever been raped. All women are pathological liars. And um, and how dare you take away my right to rape people? It's, 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 it's a particularly perverse form of Talmudic reasoning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the Talmud should be blamed for this. I don't think it, you know. So, 
the it's it's the the internet. I mean, what what you're describing is also uh, perplexing because it's like the internet plays a very powerful role in surfacing things that were heretofore hidden at the same time that we are living in this new one-world panopticon society. You know, for feminism, the internet is such a bizarre, contrary uh, place because on the one hand, you see social media used brilliantly by feminists with things like the Yes All Woman hashtag and then after the Ray Rice um, second video got out, the Why I Stayed, Why I Left hashtags about uh, being survivors of domestic violence. But also the internet as a whole is run by creepy Silicon Valley dudes who've done everything in their power to make it safe for creepy dudes. And you look at Twitter, which doesn't have a problem with people making rape and death threats against outspoken women. They did shut down the ISIS when ISIS made a death threat against Twitter employees because if you threaten a Twitter employee, that's bad. But if you just threaten a feminist like Jessica Valenti or Mary Beard or something like that, that's free speech, which is... and. Um, you know, and so it's it's a very mixed landscape. But I have, you know, Facebook is sort of, can be a cesspit, but I have these really interesting conversations, mostly with other women, with some men as well, about things that are happening. And, uh, you know, it does allow for a kind of multivocal conversation that doesn't take place by email. And, um, you know, and... Um, so, but some guy always shows up in the conversation who just assumes he's invited and has something to contribute. And usually a lot, you know, and there are some lovely and amazing men who are part of these conversations, but there's always these, this guy who shows up who doesn't, hasn't done any research, doesn't, and just sort of assumes that what he has to contribute is inherently valuable or something. And, you know, and very, very, very frequently the first thing out of his mouth is false rape accusations. And there are false rape, rape accusations. You know, there's dog, there's man bite dog stories, and those are more exciting than dog bite man stories. But more dogs bite men than men bite dogs. I I have been working on a new bit that's yeah. re related to this whole subject, and one of the things that one of the things I'm working on is is saying something that people have never heard a white man say before, which is, huh, maybe I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> Maybe I should ask somebody say that. and listen before I hold forth in public. Yeah, uh, I don't know is an awesome thing to say. And it's, you know, and people should, you know, I have some areas of expertise. I know a lot about Edward Moybridge, for example, and uh, a few other things like that. And it's just sort of like, you, you know, it's just like, I don't know everything. And that should be, I don't know. It would be great if uh, more of that could happen. In my Men Explain Things book, I wrote a whole essay about Virginia Woolf, who is exceptionally poetically good at saying, I don't know, and acknowledging and making room for the mysterious and the unknown. And I think it's a great gift. And it's funny because that essay has a very different tone than some of the more uh, overtly feminist essays in the book. And some people have been like, why is that essay there? And it's like, because it's the exact opposite of Men Explain Things to me. This is, you know, there's all these annoying guys who don't know that they don't know what they're talking about and talk about it anyway. And then there's this incredible woman who has said more beautifully and eloquently, I don't know, we don't know. There is this area of unknowability that's an important part of the universe and all our psyches. And uh, yeah, so good for you if you uh, find room for that. I wonder if there's a kind of rabbi joke space for that, because one of the things I love about uh, rabbi jokes and you know rabbinical humor is the idea of answering a question with a question, and it can be kind of very wise guys. So you don't know that. Why is that? 
you know, and put the other person on the spot. Right. But it's also, you know, and turning the question on the questioner can be a really interesting power dynamic. I always regret I don't do it more when I do like scary radio interviews with hostile interviewers asking really inappropriate questions. But um, but I think I think there's something there too. I know the sense of the infinite questionability of the universe is also part of rabbinical humor, which might suggest that maybe we don't know it all already. Right. Sure. Uh, so what's what's the most hopeful stuff to you happening in feminism? You know, there's been just that we're having these huge conversations that include the prime minister of India and the White House and all these men are getting involved in a really constructive way, you know, as well as the mansplainers. And, um, you know, and it's, it's not just one thing. It's that people are speaking up and not tolerating things that used to just go by. The media now takes all these stories seriously that used to get dismissed. And I've been waiting for this moment my whole life in so many ways. And I remember, you know, almost 30 years ago, there would be racial crimes, homophobic crimes that would get talked about as this is this this one incident, this Matthew Shepard, this Bensonhurst or Howard Beach lynching, this James Byrd in Jasper, Texas thing is an example of a a pandemic of racism or homophobia and it's intolerable and somebody's civil rights were violated when they were attacked or killed and that, you know, and that a whole group civil rights are always being threatened and this is this human rights, civil rights issue and we have to do something about it. And meantime, there's like three domestic homicides a day. There's about a, a rape a rape a minute in the United States at, um, you know, a woman's beaten. I've, I have two separate set of statistics. One says once every 15 seconds, one says once every nine seconds in the United States. And nobody would ever add that up and say this is an epidemic. They almost started to during the O.J. Simpson trial um, for sawing off his wife's head. Um, and, um, you know, and then they managed to make O.J. the victim and spin the story. And expensive lawyers can get almost anyone off anything, as Dominique Strauss-Kahn proved somewhat later. And, uh, you know, and we're finally having that conversation of saying, like, this incident, um, you know, in Steubenville and New Delhi are where it really, I feel like it really began, but it's be happening with a lot of incidents with the Isla Vista massacre, with the Ray Rice for domestic violence incident. And we're finally, you know, these are being treated as serious news stories. Nobody's uh, people, we now have language to identify victim blaming, to address rape culture, to address the entitlement and things like that. It's a really different conversation. And I'm seeing that there we now have enough feminist voices with enough prominence that, you know, we're sitting here watching a Little League baseball game in Golden Gate Park. It's like, fem but I think football or soccer is a better metaphor. Feminists are kind of seizing the ball and running with it and making the goal and not letting the other team say, oh, isolated incident, mental illness, nothing to do with anything, not a major news incident. What was she wearing? And... Um, you know, so the whole conversation has really transformed. And another thing that I think is tremendously exciting is that also people used to talk about rape, sexual harassment, workplace sexual harassment. I meant sexual harassment on the street versus workplace sexual harassment, um, domestic violence and homicide as like many separate categories. And now we're all looking at them as a kind of gender violence or uh, mis misogyny or... Um, you know, that's connected. And that also really changes things to talk about them together because talking about them separately was part of isolating it as like, oh, the this rape has nothing to do with this beating, which has nothing to do with the, you know, some guy. And if you tried to bring it up, they'd be like, oh, he just like, like this guy who followed you home didn't kill you. So what are you talking about? 
And one of the funny things about the the doodly obsession with uh, false uh, false accusations of rape is you actually look at statistics for rape. Most of them aren't reported. The ones that are reported, um, the police are often very uninterested. Uh, you know, the police have a pretty high incidence of domestic violence themselves, and not all of them are radical feminists, to say the least. And there are cities like Baltimore, New Orleans, and St. Louis where tens of thousands of rapes went unreported because the departments decided to like make their statistics look good by just ignoring rape reports. And there have been some, there were on St. Louis, there were some serial rapes and murders because the police just didn't bother to listen to the first several victims of a, of a single person. And, um, so, you know, so, so there's low incidence of reporting, low incidence of prosecute, you know, follow up and prosecution and low incidence of conviction you know, it ends up being about 3% of the rapes that are reported end up in conviction, and a lot of them aren't reported. So, you know, like, what would happen if the, you know, and, which, and then you look at things like in Indian reservations where 88% of the rape of Native women is by white men who know that the tribes have no jurisdiction over them. They're doing it because they can get away with it. And, and, okay, I'm naming something where that needs to take place. But essentially, I think that a lot of these things are happening because people think they can get away with them, not be, not because the laws aren't on the books, but because they're not being, you know, because the legal system isn't serving uh, the victims in a meaningful way. And I think there, are, of course, there are cases where it's germane, and uh, and I think it, you know, it's as much a hate crime as race or or orientation uh, attacks are a hate crime. Except that the problem, I think, for a lot of people conceptually is if you call this a hate crime, then it means that the level of hate crimes in the United States just increased a thousandfold. You know, the number of incidences on the basis of, of race or religion or orientation are really small compared to the number based, of, based on gender. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, you, you went to the People's Climate March? I did. It was wonderful. How, what is it? Well, tell, tell me some stories. Oh, I was, oh, well, I, one of the things that was so interesting, you never want to overestimate how many people are going to show up. And if you say a million people are going to show up, half a million people is a letdown and things. And so watching 350.org, be really careful about the numbers and say 100, and then I heard 200,000, 200, which is really huge. It's so much bigger than any other climate action. I think the biggest we've had is about 50,000 for one on an incredibly bitter uh, winter day in D.C., which I was at, and it was like, 25 degrees or something and this was lovely steamy weather not as hot as threatened but um and then they went up to about 250,000 and then the day of the march they said 310,000 and then they upped it to 400,000 one interesting thing is i've spent a lot of my life watching the media down you know downscale demonstrations say that 50,000 people were 15,000 people and do that thing where they give equal time to the anti, you know, the, the 11 anti-abortion people and the 30,000 pro-reproductive uh, rights people or something. So, and the media also was on board with it. But it, was, it really, there were, the slogan was to change everything we need everyone or everybody. To change everything we need everybody. And everybody really did kind of show up. There are people from all over the world. Uh, the the frontline communities at risk and in Indigenous people led the march, and there were people from uh, South and Central America and all over the Americas. Idle No More has been a big part of the climate movement and the fight against the tar sands and the pipelines, and they were well represented, all these amazing groups. But everybody was there. There's this little group of guys in turbans carrying a 
pretty funky cardboard sign that said six for six against climate change. And, you know, just this group of five, five dudes in turbans. It was so lovely. So and then there was all these people who had been impacted by Hurricane Sandy and had this fantastic procession where they're carrying cardboard life rings, the kind of things they throw out for you when you're drowning. And they just named all these communities in Brooklyn and Queens and uh, Staten Island and stuff that were impacted. People just had really beautiful signs and giant puppets and floats and funny and smart signs. There are these times, like during the beginning of the war in Iraq and 11 years ago, where it feels like the signs people carry, if you added them all up together, constitute a pretty elegant argument. You know, like one sign just addresses, you know, like in 12 words, you don't necessarily address everything. And, uh, you know, there was just a lot of lot of young people as well as boomers and older people, a lot of families, a bunch of baby strollers, and uh, religious groups, uh, sort of union groups and labor groups. And just so many different kinds of people there. And it also looked like New York, which is, you know, the most linguistically diverse place on earth and one of the more ling- more ethnically diverse places. And there really was, you know, everybody there. And it was very good, good-natured. And even though it got stalled for a couple of hours, probably because the front march took off and there was the front of the march and then there was a gap. And people kept streaming into the gap, so they kept filling in the middle, so the end never got to get up and walk for a couple of hours. But uh, it was so huge. And, uh, you know, and they had these great banners describing some of the issues, like We Know Who's Responsible was one of the more radical banners at um, We Have the Solutions address the fact that we actually know what to do. We just have some obstructions, like the oil corporations, uh, between us and being able to do it. And, uh, you know, the head of the UN was in the march. and uh, But it wasn't really about bigwigs. You know, it was about students and things. And it was also just so interesting to see how much the, the facts in the conversation have evolved. And there was this period when it was about polar bears, bad things happening in remote places or bad things would only happen to us very far away. We're past that. There was this moment when everybody thought it was just going to be austerity. We all had to have compact fluorescent light bulbs and and carpool. And now it's really about we actually need to change our whole system, not just be full of personal virtue. And people seem to really get that. And uh, so it just felt like a lot of energized people who really get what's happening and get that it's urgent. And now we just hope that um, a lot more than those 400,000 and the people in the other 2,000 demonstrations and I think it was 173 other countries stay active. But it did feel like it could be a watershed moment. Right. I mean, you know, I, I was I was reading your article in the it, that ran in the in the Nation from which was really from Tom Dispatch. Which was really from Tom's Dispatch. Uh, a Jewish website run by a nice Jewish boy on the Upper West Side. People of uh, people of JCC land. Um, yes. That that was like Tom Engelhart, which uh, means angel heart, and, and aptly enough, it was a sort of you know, somewhat hopeful piece. Yeah, and I find myself. This is one of those issues, like a lot of people, where it's like I'm very concerned, but like have this suffocating discouragement. You know that it's all not- I can do is fatten myself so that my children have something to eat. You know, <laughs> when society <laughs> collapses. Well, that's it. You know, it's kind of one of those things that. We're arguing with retirement boards and stuff. You can't save yourself when the whole system is going down. You have to save the system. 
you know, when I've been working a little bit on uh, following the dive, trying to get the San Francisco Retirement Board to divest. And what is a retirement board about? It's about ensuring that individual pensioners with their funds in the San Francisco Pension Fund will have a secure future by prudently investing that money. But there's no such thing as a prudent investment on a planet in crisis. And climate change is going to create a level of havoc that means that nobody's well-being is secured. And and it's interesting because Americans are very good at that gated community response. I'll just build a wall around me. And the gated community thing is so sad because it really imagines, like a lot of the libertarian stuff, that you're so independent and autonomous. And you look at somebody whose house is their castle and it's kind of like, so do you breathe air? Is there water coming in and out of your property? And they're usually on the gas line and the power grid and the water line and there's a sewer. And, and you know, there are people out doing the composting toilet thing in the country, but these aren't them. They get you know, you can't really withdraw from the thing as a whole. And I, you know, and it's not really a question of whether we're going to prevent climate change. Climate change is happening and will continue to happen, and the effects continue to unfold centuries after you put the carbon in the atmosphere. But we're at a pivotal moment now where we can limit how bad it gets or not. And there's a huge difference between like a two degree centigrade temperature rise and a four, de- like they, and a four degree, and a lot of other kinds of mitigations that could be done if we act boldly and broadly now and it's interesting one of the analogies for me is you know when you get a diet when you get a really severe diagnosis you can either say like well 97 percent of the people who get this die or you can say like well i think because i have small children i'm going to try and be the three percent on this one and uh you know, I don't I don't feel optimistic because for me, optimism is the idea that everything will be fine no matter what. I can just skip along thinking happy thoughts. Just like pessimism is like, it's all sucks and there's nothing we can do about it. But I think that there are a lot of things we can do. And it's going to take a vast global cabal to outdo the power of the carbon corporations and the governments that serve them and the inertia of the status quo. But... You know, that piece was really about remembering that we're in a world that's changed radically over and over and over again. People in um, the status quo like to suggest that we're in a very stable system that's exactly as it ought to be. And you can't, and changing it would be dangerous and disruptive. And we can't really think about doing that. And of course, you just have to remind them look, come on, 25 years ago, there was the Soviet Union. You know, 75 years ago, there was World War II going on. At, um, you know, that, that, so, you know, um, 25 years ago also, we were at 350 parts per million, which is all we really need to get down to to be in a, a fairly viable world. And, um, you know, that everything changes all the time. You, uh, it, I mean, the, what the piece, what, in, in my, I, uh, I was in high school in 89. What, yeah. what it got me remembering was 99 when, yeah. you know, in one week in November, American public opinion flipped on free trade. That And I was there in Seattle in 99, speaking of my activist credentials. Uh-huh. And that was a completely amazing moment where, you know, like the climate march only more so, it succeeded far beyond what anybody anticipated. And it was an incredibly exciting moment. And, um, you know, and there really was this position, and Thomas Friedman... Um, the billionaire columnist for the New York Times, uh, 
you know, like to call us, I think, trogdolites and flat earthers and things like that. He later wrote a book about how the earth was flat, but never mind that. But a lot of people just suddenly woke up and realized, as Mexicans and Canadians had before, that, oh, this is really screwed up. But what's also remarkable about that is that most people thought the World Trade Organization was inevitably going to take over the world and there was nothing you could do about it. And it was spoken of with, with fatalism, like, you know, the inevitability of unchecked climate change. And then it was checked. And the activists in the streets gave the people from the global south the confidence to stand up against the bullies and the WTO ministerials, which collapsed without an agreement. And the World Trade Organization still exists and is still incredibly destructive, but it has vastly less power than it was supposed to be. And the free trade area of the Americas was dead in the waters once Latin America was sort of off and running in the new millennium with this... A uh, new sense of anti uh, anti neoliberal uh, progressive democracy in a lot of those countries, and uh, you know things do not things did not turn out the way anybody expected. Remember the multilateral agreement on investments that was coming before the yeah, in, before ninety nine. Yeah. It was going to be the NAFTA on steroids. Yes, uh, they and it never happened. The, so I mean, one of the for for. Both of the things that we've been talking about, both climate change and the patriarchy, uh, I mean, I, I always, as an activist, I've always felt like the biggest obstacle is uh, the encouraged confusion that people have about how change occurs. Yeah. More than like... Or that change can't occur because you're powerless and nothing ever really changes and we never really did anything. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And like... And that, and that, you know, the 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 sort of tension between, like, as an activist, most of the time you spend more time losing than winning. You have a lot of things that nobody shows up at. You have a lot of meetings that are frustrating, and then all of a sudden, you know, like like there was that with with November '99, two years earlier, no one planned that. You know, with yeah. February 2003, six months earlier, no one knew. We didn't know we were going to get there. Yeah. And. Uh, and similarly with the climate march, we didn't know we were going to get there before we got there. And it's so hard to like figure out how to talk to people about pacing themselves. Do you know what I mean? This gets back to the mansplaining zone of our conversation, that you have to accept that there's a lot of things you don't know and do it anyway. You know, and one of the reasons I think cynicism and despair are really fashionable is that people like certainty and people say like that will never work we have we're never going to do anything we we've never changed anything we'll never change anything feel very you know weird way they have a kind of confidence not confidence in the world in the future and their fellow human beings but confidence in the awesomeness of their own dismal uh perspective and uh you know you really have to you know, if you're going to be accurate, you have to say, we don't know what will happen next. The world is full of surprises and get in touch with that unknowability that Virginia Woolf spoke so eloquently about. And I've tried to write about in books like Hope in the Dark, the sense that part of the reason to be active is that you don't know what will happen next. You know, there's really a sense by a lot of people that we must do it. All. I mean, I remember having this argument with Susan Sontag that we must... She had this, we must do it, although it is futile. And it's like, how do you know it's futile? Lots of things have consequences, that, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years afterwards. And there's, here's one of my favorite feminist meets anti-nuclear meets Dr. Benjamin Spock of baby and childcare fame stories, which is 
reading a woman who'd been part of Women's Strike for Peace, the great feminist anti-war group from the early 60s, talking about standing in the rain, protesting nuclear weapons at the White House, and probably like 63 or something like that, and just feeling like this is such a waste of time, we're not accomplishing anything, this totally sucks. Although people never said this totally sucks in 1963. They had more elegant uh, constructions then. And then many years later, hearing B B Dr. Uh, Benjamin Spock, who'd become one of the most outspoken opponents to the Vietnam War, uh, saying, why did he become an opponent of the war? Well, he walked by this little group of women in the rain in front of the White House and thought, like, well, look at what they were doing. He should be, you know, if they could do this, what the hell was he doing not participating in these big things? And he became a very, very powerful force. So you don't know... Uh, you know, ever what these things are going to do. And there's so many things like that, that of these kind of unknown consequences. It's what, so one of the things that I like about being a labor activist is that I yeah. like strikes because yeah. strikes create this rupture in the order and people are able to imagine things that they can't imagine otherwise. And there like was little disasters, they're little disasters in a good sense. And little uh, carnivals equally. The, the uh, and there was one time I was about to go on strike, and and uh, one of the union leaders, so this was with the with, with the bike and car messengers in San Francisco in the 90s, and uh, uh, so they they said, you know, Moses had to step into the Red Sea to make the water part, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah. No one, no one opened that road for him. Yeah, yeah. God, it reminds me of Julia Butterfly Hill, who is raised by evangelists, had a great story about one of those kinds of massive floods they have in the South where people end up stranded on their rooftops, you know, like a Mississippi flood. And, um, and some devout evangelicals on his rooftop and a boat, a rowboat comes by and, and he says like, and the guy wants to rescue me. He's like, no, God will save me. And then, you know, like a big boat comes by and then a helicopter comes by and he keeps saying, no, God will save me. And then he drowns and and, and then he, like, at the, at the gates of heaven is, like, yeah, choose out St. Peter. Uh, no, he choose out God himself. And God says, come on, I sent a boat, a yacht, a plane, and a helicopter. What were you waiting for? <laughs> you know, that, that there are these, you know, you get these openings and you have to seize them. And they don't always look promising. And they certainly don't look like what you preconceived if you think you know exactly what's going to happen. And I think a lot of it is just being flexible that maybe the climate movement is going to look like this and not like that. Maybe these people are going to run with it. Maybe these new alliances need to be built. And, you know, what the possibilities are, what the alliances are, shifts all the time with, with that movement. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is that 10 years ago, it seemed technologically overwhelming and incredibly expensive. We're now at a point where the new tech, new uh, green technologies are so elegant that essentially people are now saying we could change it all with little or no cost. And if you, you know, and saying how much it costs is about discounting how much it costs if we destroy the world, which costs a lot. And, um, you know, so we're also in a completely different technological moment than it, and that's much better than we anticipated. And uh, so... But we still have these incredibly stuck, obstinate, nearsighted people in power. So, you know, but a lot of them are windmills. And it's part of why I don't get very personal about the president and things like that. I think they're windmills and it's our job to be the wind or weather vanes, I should say. They're weather vanes. It's our job to be the weather. 
Well said. Thank you very much, Rebecca Solnit. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Always a pleasure to talk to you. And look at these little 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 leaguers or little baseball players all huddled together having their moment of peace. Talking See, about there is hope. About, about sportsmanship and teen spirit. So, and cute little boys on a baseball field in Golden Gate Park on a lovely, uh, God, what is it, Indian summer afternoon. Thanks a lot. Take You're care. You're welcome. You too. And that was the NATO Sessions with author and activist Rebecca Solnit. I'm comedian Nato Green. This has been a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. You can follow me on Twitter at Nato Green. If you enjoy the podcast, please like, review, subscribe, share on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. This has been produced by Dan Wolf, edited by Steve Bissinger, theme music by DJ Real. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.